You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. Doing all right? Good, 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 good. Let me get this business out of the way first. You know, when you're young, people that are friends, you know, they give you cool things like candy and toys and stuff. And when you're old, they give you reading glasses. Lori Landrum saw my little cheesy little reading glasses I got here. And she said, man, I'm going to have to get you some of the real deal. And so she brought these to me this morning. I'm telling you, these are classy. And I like them. Why, why do they have two lenses, though? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Because you've just got the... Because it's got to have something for the other side of the right. nose to, to hold, hold on to. to. And who knows? This might come back. It may. In eternity, it will for sure. <laughs> well, then you won't need the glasses. <laughs> I won't need glasses. And you you're right. Them. Well, good morning. Glad that y'all are with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be jumping into, as we mentioned, the uh, probably most well-known verse in all of the New Testament, John 316. This was meant to be a Valentine's Day message. And of course, we didn't meet last week for obvious reasons. The snowpocalypse, I think, is, <laughs> or, or snowvid. I've heard that one as well. It's a good one. Um, but, but we were you know, kind of intending on unpacking this verse on Valentine's Day because what Valentine's Day typically stands for, it's all about love, right? Hearts, candies, flowers, love. And it got me thinking uh, these last couple weeks now, as I was thinking about this message, how interesting of a word love really is, especially in our English language. We, we use the word in a variety of ways that hold a variety of meanings, a whole range of meanings that are very different, and yet it's the same word. So for example, you might hear me say, I love my wife and my three kids. You might also hear me on the same day say, I love tacos. In fact, you'll almost certainly hear me say that uh, oh, yeah. most days. You like your food. I love my food. And so... We use the same word, but we, we capture a, a, a very different meaning in each of those statements. Hopefully you understand there's a lot of space between love for family and love for food, but it's the same word. And even when we look in the dictionary, it's strange. We get some interesting definitions to feel deep affection for someone. That's one of the things that we find in the dictionary. Here's another one. To like or enjoy something very much. That's the taco definition, by the way, of love. <laughs> like and enjoy tacos very much. It's difficult because when we read the, the scriptures and we read passages, one like we're going to look at today that involves the word love, where we run the risk of taking cultural definitions of that word and reading them into the text. And it's dangerous because it is almost always wrong to do that. It almost always hits the wrong mark. Uh, as we look through this text this morning, John 3.16, our goal here is to unpack a clearer understanding of what love really means. Now, if you did not grow up in church or you've been living under a rock, I'm going to read John 3.16 for you, although <laughs> most of you are probably pretty familiar with it. You've all seen it at the baseball games. Exactly, yes. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Life. Now, what did God do in this passage? He loved. He loved. The question is, for us in 2021 in America, does he love us like we love our spouses or our tacos? <laughs> or does he love us in a way that is different? Now, spoiler, it's, it's, the, it's the last one. He loves okay. us different. I'm glad you clarified. And his love is important to understand because the way God loves, we believe, really truly defines what love means from a biblical perspective. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to unpack some different aspects of love as they are presented in this passage. So hopefully you come away with a clearer understanding of what is going on here. The first one James is going to tackle, which is the embodiment of love. John 3.16 is, as he said, is probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible. Even if you can't quote it all, you can give the elements of John 3.16. And for that reason, it is often a verse that we kind of skip over and take for granted because, uh, well, we figure everybody kind of knows what John 3.16 actually means. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a deep dive into this verse, and I'm going to show you, we're going to show you together that John 3.16 encapsulates so much information 
that we could literally spend weeks on each one of the aspects that we're going to be giving you this morning. This is Jesus that is speaking. He's speaking to a fellow by the name of Nicodemus that is a uh, teacher of the Jews, as Derek is going to develop here in a moment. And what Jesus says in this one verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life is packed with so much meaning. So John, Jesus begins in the very beginning of that verse, he says, for God so loved. So he identifies the kind of love that he is talking about. It is God's love. Now his readers and even his hearer, Nicodemus, would have immediately understood what God he was talking about because Nicodemus was a Jew, a teacher of the Jews, and, and Jesus was a Jew, and it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, the God of Genesis 1 who in the beginning spoke and, and, and all creation came into being. So, so Nicodemus and anyone reading it or hearing it at that particular time would have understood. And for us today as Christ followers, when we read this, we, we immediately know that Jesus is talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's talking about the one and true living God. But in the rest of our culture today, that's not really true, is it? That when you say God, people don't automatically understand what God you're even talking about because God has become like one of those generic terms that can mean almost anything. It's a little bit like the term Coke. Coke has become a generic term, really, hasn't it? For anything that's carbonated that you get out of one of those dispensers at the service station. You can call Dr. Pepper Coke, although I can't imagine the insanity of someone that would want to do that, because Dr. Pepper is so much better. So he was much born, better. In, you know, in Jerusalem on the Brazos in Waco, Texas, of right. all things. Right. And, and, but, you know, but we use it to refer to anything pretty much that's carbonated, but there really is only one true Coke. And the word God has be kind of become generically used that way. Uh, when you, so when you talk about God, you have to really get, you, you have to clarify what, what you mean by God because people have all of these different ideas about God. But not only that, but often among God's people, among Christians who are professing believers in Christ, they also have all of these, sometimes we develop these distorted ideas about who God really is, who the true God is. And you could almost, uh, they're caricatures of the true. And the, have you ever been, had one of those things that, where they do a caricature of you? You know what they always emphasize on me when they do caricatures? Let me get one guess. It's, it's, it's the It's the, the snoz. No, 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 no. It's the snoz. In fact, my, both of my kids, uh, you know, we've had caricatures of them done. What do they emphasize? They both got the Reeves snoz. They didn't have a chance. But so a caricature is where you kind of, blow out a distortion, in distortion, one aspect and character of an individual. And so we've developed these caricatures of God. Let me give you a couple of them that we kind of got to dismiss, but they are some that some of us, perhaps in this room, are struggling with and you've developed in your life. Who is God, the real God? Well, some of you might think, well, he's the grumpy God. That God is this cranky individual who's never satisfied with me, and he always wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He's always gruff, and you better walk on eggshells around him because you just might tick him off. Now, none of us would raise our hand and say this morning that that's kind of the view of God that you've kind of carried through life, but I'll guarantee a lot of you have some kind of idea in mind that that's really who God is, that he's just really kind of ticked off and kind of hacked off at you. Another one is the game God. And this is that God is playing games with me. He's the eternal trickster, if you will. And, and, he, and, and sometimes we just think, you know, God just gets his kicks out of playing tricks on us and confusing us and keeping us wondering what his next move is going to be. And then he really just kind of gets his jollies out of watching us stumble around trying to figure things out. He's the game God. He's playing God, ga games with us. Mm. A third is the guessing God. This is a God in the image of God that God really enjoys keeping us wandering. We oftentimes about his will, you know, we kind of think, well, God just uses his will just to keep me guessing all the time. Not only that, but guessing about how he feels about me. Does, does he really love me? I mean, when everything's going great, maybe I guess he does. But when things go down the toilet, is God mad at me? Is he angry at me? Does he love me today? Is he going to love me tomorrow or is he going to have a bad, really bad day? And, and he's just not going to love me this day. Come on, folks, fess up. Are, are you all too spiritual to have ever thought those kinds of thoughts? 
We have a room full of liars. Absolutely. Liars and thieves, <laughs> the, the depraved nature. Here's the one that's very popular today, and that's the genie God. Oh, yeah. This one is so popular in certain circles of the Christian faith that, that God is like in this bottle, okay? And he's just waiting for me to release him from the bottle, to rub the bottle by making the right statement, by claiming it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And, and you know, uh, uh, what denying that word was ever spoken and, and all these kinds of things. And by doing the formula that you can make God, the eternal genie, do anything that you want him to do to do your bidding. And when he's done, then you stuff him back in the bottle until the next time you need him to pop out and dig your butt out of a hole. Or give you that mansion or give you that car or whatever it is that you want. I mean, we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? About all of these caricatures that even we who are Christ followers, if we're not careful, will begin to develop in our lives and in our minds. So Jesus reveals himself or God reveals himself as none of those things. And Jesus encapsulates this when he says, no, this God that I'm talking to you about is none of those things. He is a giving God. For God so loved that he did what? That he gave. And when we're going to think about true love, folks, love when it is present, not only in God's character, but even in human relationships, is giving is going to also be there. And if giving is not there, then what is being demonstrated is not true love. It's something Elf. If it doesn't give, it isn't love. So God, who's the embodiment of perfect love, loved so much that he did what? He did what love always does when it is real, that he gave. So when you begin to wander in difficult times, does God really love me? What is God like? Remember, he's not the grumpy God. He's not the game God. He's not the guessing God. He's not the genie God. He is, in fact, the God who gives as an expression of his love. And giving is always the expression of genuine love. I got an illustration of this this morning, and I'm telling you this because I'm proud of my daughter, but also because it, was, it illustrates what I'm trying to say to you this morning. My daughter, Tiffany, is 38 years old. She's married, mother of three children. Uh, she's married to a pastor, and they live in Colorado Springs where he pastors a church, and she is a pediatric trauma nurse practitioner at Cook's Children's Hospital here in Fort Worth. You go, how does that work? Well, she flies in every week to, week to do her, her, uh, her uh, what do you call them, her, uh, her, her oh, rotations rotation. at the hospital. She'll come in, do a 24-hour rotation, and then a 12-hour rotation, get on her plane and fly home. And, but about four years ago, she got really involved with a group called Go Ruck, and these are Former special operators from various branches of the military, some of them Army Rangers, uh, some of them Navy SEALs. Uh, one of them is even uh, from the Israeli Defense Forces, where while he was in the Israeli Defense Forces, he was a counterterrorism te- uh, specialist. This guy is one bad dude. Well, what they did is they started a company called Go Ruck, where they take normal people like you and I, and they Get them, give them the experiences. Some of them are live fire experiences with AR, sometimes with pistols, and some of them are just endurance experiences to give you an understanding and get you a chance to experience what it takes to be a special operator, to wear that Ranger patch or that or have that Navy SEAL trident, uh, you know, on your on your uniform to get normal people an opportunity. She started doing this. She's done about thirty events. The big one is called Go Ruck Heavy. It's in three phases, and it lasts for 48 hours. She's in the middle of it right now in Houston, Texas. She tried this last year. It is the, it is the summation of everything that Go Ruckers want to do to get that patch for this event. She tried it last year in Philadelphia, and 19 hours in, she fractured her foot. And five hours later, she finally convinced herself, I have to quit. She had to go through some more orthopedic stuff to get that fixed. So she signed up again. She's been training for months for this event. And it's, it's like this. I, there's a reason why I'm telling you this. I'm proud of my daughter for doing this stuff. Okay, she's 110 pounds. But I'm also, there's an illustration here. It's in three parts. It's called heavy, tough, and light. And it lasts 48 hours. You don't sleep for 48 hours. The first 24 hours, you're, log, you're carrying a 30-pound pack. 24 hours straight, 
without stopping. It doesn't matter if you're a 110-pound female or a 210-pound male, you've got to carry 30 pounds on your, your back. The second phase, which she actually, it was in that first phase that she hurt her foot last year and didn't even get the patch for the first phase. She made it through uh, last night. She started, uh, was it Friday night at 6 o'clock? 6 o'clock yesterday morning, she finished and got the heavy patch. She started at uh, 9 o'clock last night, um, I think it was, yeah, 9 o'clock last night, on the second, which is the tough part. This is 12 hours long. It's a 50-mile part of the event. It's 85 to 90 miles total that they finish at the end, carrying a 70 to 80-pound pack between four people in a group. They pass it around. She's 110 pounds, and she's already carried 30 pounds for 24 freaking hours. I don't know how she did it. She got the, she got the tough patch this morning. Incredible. Send us a picture. There's one more. It's the light. And they start at noon and they go for seven hours and they're walking just to carry nothing, just to get to the end. And she's going to complete that. Now, she's 38 years old. She's married. She's somebody else's problem. (laughs) She's got three kids. And dad has been doing this all weekend long. You know, it never quits, does it? It never quits because I, I love my daughter and I want to be there for her and I would love to be able to, last year I would have been able to pick her up and carry her after she fractured her foot carrying that weight and all those kinds of things. But I can't be there. But that is just, if I could, if I could be there, I would be there with her, if nothing else, just to walk alongside her and say, you can do it, you can do it, you're bad, you're bad, come on, you can do it. And her husband says, She's, my wife is a bad A. <laughs> you translate that for whatever, for whatever you, you want it to be. He's a pastor. He right. said it. I'm right. just quoting. Right. We just and you see, because she's in a time of difficulty, and there's nothing because I love her. I would give anything to be able to be her, and I can't be. But I want to tell you, your heavenly Father will. Mm. Your heavenly Father is there with you. And when you are going through, through difficult times, don't you dare begin to think that he's the grumpy God or he's the guessing God. He is the giving God. Jesus said he is the embodiment of love and he expresses that love and he demonstrates that love because he gives. Mm. And then Jesus takes us into the extent of his love. Derek's going to dig some deep holes here right now. Yeah, yeah, and that is a good just kind of warning up front. We're going to get a little theological here this morning in this portion and, and interact with the language a little bit, but we have to to really get what is going on in John 3.16. It says that God so loved the world. Now, what does that mean, the world? It's a word that has given people trouble for centuries, because it, it appears to paint a picture that could seem contrary to other parts of the New Testament and even the Old Testament. And when we get into New Testament theology, and, and right now actually in our, our Sunday schools, what we call our life Bible studies, we're studying through First Peter, and we have dealt with now for two, maybe going on three weeks, this concept of election, uh, God's elect or predestination. That's another word that gives people Thumbs up, fits. thumbs down. It'll yeah. go about 50-50 in the yeah. room this morning, I'm uh, sure. The foreknowledge of God. <laughs> and, and so these passages seem to run contrary to what John 3.16 is teaching. How do we reconcile these things? How do we reconcile the fact that God can save and elect people that he calls out from the world, but also loves that same world? Now, before we talk about this, I want to submit to you a dilemma that we face whenever we study Scripture. Not just now in John 3.16, but anytime you open the Bible, there is a dilemma that we are faced with. And this is what the dilemma says. We are trying to understand concepts about an infinite, eternal being with our finite, mortal minds. And that's going to cause a problem. It is. Let me say it again. We're trying to understand concepts about an infinite, eternal being being with our finite, mortal minds. This is what that means for us practically. It means that we can expect difficulty reconciling every detail of Scripture together with one another. It means that not everything is going to logically make sense when we try and put it together. Can we be comfortable with that? Can we be comfortable with that? Now, I like to say there is tension in the Scripture. There's tension. What do I mean by that? I mean that there are times when it appears that the Scripture is saying something, and then other verses where it appears like it's saying something completely different, and somehow these things go together. There's tension here. And there are really like two conclusions that we can draw when something like this happens, when you're faced with tension in the Scripture. The first one is you can say, this doesn't make sense. 
This is typically what a skeptic will say or someone who is, is having difficulty with understanding or even in wanting to believe the Bible. This doesn't make sense. So just reject This it. is, yeah, foolishness. It's, it's, it, it contradicts. There's one other conclusion that we can come to, and, and this second conclusion says, not that it doesn't make sense, but that I am incapable of making sense of it. Why would that be? Because I'm trying to understand concepts about an infinite, eternal being with a finite, mortal mind. I ain't God. I'm not God. There are things that I'm just not going to be able to make sense of. So how do we make sense of this? How can God love the world and elect people out of the world? Some would argue that the word world here just is referring to the elect. And you know what I think about that line of reasoning? <laughs> exactly. That right there. It's a That's a term we learned in graduate school. In seminary. In seminary. Exactly. It's not at all convincing to me, and the reason why is because the Greek word for world here is the word cosmos. It's a word that we have developed, we actually have transliterated into our own language, cosmos. But in the Greek, it's often understood as the entire human race, okay? All peoples, plural, all people groups, you could think of it that way. Now, we've got to understand the context of John 3.16 for us to really get at what John is painting here that Jesus is saying. Who is Jesus talking to? That's the first question we have to ask. He's talking to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. Beyond that, he was a part of something called the Sanhedrin, which is sort of like a, a Jewish supreme court, if you will. And, and Nicodemus was not just a teacher of the law. He was a top-shelf teacher of the law. He was one he of the was, high muckety-muck. He was one of the big dogs, exactly. You go to this guy for like the final answer on certain issues. We know that because Jesus in verse 10 of John 3 says, are you not the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Now he's calling him the teacher of Israel, which is a high praise even coming from Jesus. He's recognizing you are somebody in terms of teaching. But what he's saying is you're one of the top teachers in Israel and yet I'm referencing the Old Testament and you don't get it. Taking a shot at him. <laughs> now the important thing to note here is that Jewish people during this time and in the Old Testament did believe that God loved people. We, we've got to agree on that. They did believe that God loved people. Okay, so this is not a new concept. The question is, which people? Just the Jews. Just the Jews. <laughs> Only Israel. He loves the, certain people. Israel were the chosen people of God. God says in Amos 3.2, You only, he's talking to Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Only you, Israel, have I known. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, listen to that language, to be a people for his treasured possession, that out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, one people. So they are the elect. They are the chosen people of God. So John 3.16 is mind-blowing for a Jewish person. Mind-blowing. God so loved not one people group, but all of the peoples. Now, how do I know that? Because of what the translation continues to say. Your translation likely says something like, God so loved the world. Anyone have anything different than that in their translations? God so loved. So, they, don't, they don't even have a Bible. They don't even have a Bible. <laughs> so, <laughs> shots fired, man. That's great. Um, so, so the Greek word here for so, it's the word hutos. And, it, and it, it translated literally just means in this way. So, so you could translate John 3.16, for in this way God, God loved, loved the world. Now the question then becomes for us, what does in this way refer to? What does it refer back to? We have to go back and read the prior verses, and we're going to talk about this more deeply in a moment. But Jesus is recalling a Jewish story, a part of Jewish history, in which Moses raised up a bronze serpent that he created onto a stick to save the people of Israel from death. And that sounds confusing. Don't try and overthink that. I'm going to explain the details here in a moment. But it's a Jewish story where God saves his people. It's a Jewish story in the Jewish Old Testament. Nicodemus should be familiar with this story. And John is saying that bronze serpent was an act of love for his people, not the peoples of the earth, but for Israel. But then Jesus is saying here, God in the same way sent Jesus as an act of love, not just for Israel, but for everyone, that every people group has a shot now. 
That's good news for us because we're it's, all Gentiles. It's great news. So come back to this question for a minute. How does this fit in to the discussion of election? I'm going to give you an answer, and it's not going to be very satisfying for some of you. Here it is. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't fit into the discussion about try election. Try to force John 3.16 no, into that discussion. because it's not a passage about election. That's not the point of this passage. Listen to me. The point of this passage is profound. It's a profound point that Jesus is making here. And when we turn it into a proof text to try and prove some theological concept wrong, we're missing the point of the text. God is no longer interested in only saving Israel. That is profound news. This is a game changer. God has exclusively been dealing with one people group. The Messiah was exclusively Jewish from an exclusively Jewish text anointed to save the exclusively Jewish people. And John 3.16 turns that on its head and says, no, Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. He came for all the peoples. All the, peoples the, the, whole world. the people of God are no longer going to look like one kind of person. They're no longer going to speak one language. They're not going to dress the same way. They're going to come from every corner of the earth. Mm. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Listen to me, people. It's not a big deal to us 2,000 years later. It's not. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But you've got to get this, that prior to Jesus, you had no hope if you were not Jewish Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, he's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to us. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Listen to this. Having no hope and without God in the world, you were hopeless. You were godless. But when Jesus comes, he doesn't just die for them. He dies for all peoples. Don't make this a passage about something that it's not. It's tremendous for the ancients. This is good news for us. The extent of his love is no longer bound to one people group, but to people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And folks, you have to understand, it was for this very concept that they crucified Jesus. That's exactly right. Because Jesus came claiming to be the Messiah, but he was not exclusive to Israel. That's right. He, he, he reached out to the Samaritan. He reached out to the Gentile. And the Pharisees, he can't said he cannot be the Messiah because they are fodder for the fires of hell is all they're good for. And so Jesus turned this whole thing around, not only what he said, but how he lived to say that this was God's purpose to make salvation open to all of the peoples of the earth. And it's interesting that when you read the Gospels in, in their totality, there are several people that get Jesus right. There's the Samaritan, mm -hmm. there's the, uh, the Roman centurion, even the demons get Jesus right. They recognize him for who he is. Who's the one people group who get him wrong? The Jews. The Jews. Because they wanted him to come only for them. Exactly. And he said, that's, been, that's the old covenant to preserve this nation out of which the Savior would come. And now God so loved the world, all the people groups that's right. that he gave his only begotten son. That's can you, great stuff. Can you see how complex this is? We have in one verse already the embodiment of love. We have the extent of his love. Third, we have the expression of his love. It says that God so loved the world, he, that he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Now, that translation has caused some problems. But again, it comes back to this problem that the eternal God, the creator of heaven and earth, has to use the limitations of our human language to try to express to us who he is. And our language cannot cannot encapsulate the, the fullness of who God is. And so oftentimes, there are concepts that are not expressible in the limitations of our language or the limitations of our human minds. But the word that is translated here, only begotten son, has caused some problems for people to say, well, then that says that Jesus was born like everybody else. He was just a human being and blah, 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 because what? He was a begotten son. And we know what to begot means, right? We know how we all got our kids. And so somehow or another, Jesus was begotten by God and that limits him to humanity. No. Nope. The word that we translate from the Greek text into English, only begotten, is a Greek word, monogenes, which is a compound word, means only and kind. You put it together, only kind. For God so loved the world that he gave 
His only kind of son. It means his unique son, his monogenes son, his in a class by himself son, a son that is like no other son within all of your human experience, but it's the, all, it's, it's the limitations of human language. Are you getting this? So when he is saying that what God has done is he has done something incredible. He has sent a son that is not like any other son. He is a unique son. He is in a class by himself. There is no other experience in human experience that can give you the ability to understand this Jesus, the son. Now, John opened his gospel with an expression of that. In John 3, he's calling him the monogenes of God, the only begotten son, the unique son of God. He goes deeper than that as he opens his gospel in John chapter 1. And now he doesn't call Jesus a son. Now he calls him the word. And he opens John 1.1 like this. In the beginning. Now, where was the beginning? Is that right now? A long time back, right? In the beginning. Was what? The word. And the Word was with God and was God. Now, wait a minute. All right, you just lost me right there, God. How could he be with God and be God? I don't know. But in the understanding of God, he was with God and he was God. So now, this only begotten Son now is referred to as the Word who was in the beginning with, with God and was God. And then verse 14 of John 1, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten, the monogenes of God. So he's used that word twice in the first three chapters to refer to Jesus. In John 1, he's that word who became flesh, the only begotten Son of God, the monogenes. In John chapter 3, verse 16, he is the unique, the monogenes Son of God, who God loved the world so much that he gave this Son. You see, this is an expression, folks of the unique nature of the Son who is Jesus. That the Father God, the creator of heaven and earth, saw the separation that had happened between him and his creation because of sin. And he did something that is so far beyond our comprehension that we cannot even wrap our minds around it. That he chose to come in human flesh. That he wrapped his divine nature in human flesh in the person of who? The monogenes of God, the Son of God, the unique Son of God, the, in a class by himself, Son of God. Why? Because he was himself the Creator God wrapping himself in human flesh. Wow, did that just blow your mind? In my teenage years, we would have went far out. In other words, that's so far beyond me, I don't even get it. And why did the creator God take upon himself flesh in the form of the monogenes, the unique in a class by himself son? Why did he do that? Not to teach us how to live. The liberal mindset within, I don't know if they're even Christian or not. I don't know how you can say this. Because they stripped Jesus of his divinity and say, Jesus was just a good teacher. He came to teach us how to live. And there's been lots of good teachers throughout history. There was, uh, there was Buddha. Uh, there was uh, Hare Krishna. There was all, you know, the good teachers. Jesus is another one of those good teachers. No, God, the creator, God did not wrap himself in human flesh to just come and teach us. And he didn't do it to just become an example for us. Oh, so yeah. watch me, all you boys and girls, and I'm going to teach you how to live. By the I'm going to give you an example. What a, what a, a damning message that is. Oh, too. yeah. No one could ever live up to that. Nobody could live up to that. That's Nobody horrible, could live up to that. That's... I mean, we'd be just as condemned after we tried to follow his example. <laughs> Absolutely. If Jesus came to just give us a good example, which none of us can follow, we're all still damned. We're all still separated from God. He didn't do this. He didn't do this incredible thing to come as the monogenes and wrap his deity in human flesh to teach us how to live, to teach us good examples. And listen, folks, he did not come to right all human wrongs. No. 
That is not going to happen this side of eternity. That is what's going to happen in eternity. And there's a whole lot of people in the, uh, all of the movements about oppression and social justice and all that kind of stuff, which are all important things, who get hacked off at Jesus because Jesus didn't speak out against slavery. He didn't speak out against oppression. That's not why the monogonese came to right all human wrongs. The monogonese came to provide a pathway to eternal life and salvation for those who would place their faith and trust in him. That's right. That's right. And all of these injustices that we deplore, that Jesus himself deplored, Jesus often did not even address them. And people say, well, if he was the son of God, he would have. No, he, that's not why he was here. God, the eternal creator of heaven and earth, wrapped himself in human flesh not to come and right all human wrongs, but to do something with sin that had separated us from God and give us a path to eternal life. You see, the birth, God gave his unique son. And when he says that God gave his unique son, he's not talking about the birth. Now understand, when Jesus is saying this, Jesus has not yet been crucified. Right. He's still... He's just starting his public ministry. So when did God give the monogonese? You say, well, at the birth. Well, in a sense, yes, but that's not when God gave him. Now hang with me here, folks. This takes us way, way back. When God gave his son, he's talking about the cross. But the cross hadn't happened, and Jesus is speaking in the past tense as if it's already happened. If Jesus was referring to the actual physical cross, he would have said, and God will give his son. Or if he's talking about the present tense, he'd say, God is giving his, Jesus didn't, he used the past tense, the aorist tense in Greek, which means an undefined time, that God gave his monogenes son. When is that? Where has that happened? It goes back before the birth. It goes all the way back into eternity past, as a matter of fact. Let me give you an understanding of this. It was before Jesus was born, before Jesus was nailed to a cross, God had given the monogonese, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, as Jesus had already ascended to the right hand of the Father, he said, wait for the coming of the Spirit. Spirit came, the apostle Peter stood up and gave that great Pentecostal sermon. And some of you that come from Pentecostal background go, see, I told you Jesus was a Pentecostal, just like me. <laughs> yeah, he was also baptized in the river, so he must have been Baptist too. He must have been Baptist too because he was dumped. Right. But whatever, that's for another day. But the day of Pentecost, that's why we call it the Pentecostal sermon. This is what Peter stood up and he said to them about Jesus. He said, and this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, this is when God gave his son, not at birth, not at the physical crucifixion, but in the heart of God in eternity past, Jesus was given as Savior. Are you getting this? Is this too much for you? You got to understand this. You see, the cross, folks, wasn't a last ditch effort. The cross wasn't the result of a good plan that went bad. It was planned in the heart of God in eternity past. Mm. Now, this is what John again is going to say later, something, some 40 or 50 years later, at the end of his life, when he's exiled on the island of Patmos, and God gives him the revelation of Jesus, that, which we have in our New Testament as a book of Revelation. And this is what it says, Revelation 13, 8. He's talking about the beast that's going to come. This beast, and people are going to bow down and worship this this beast, and this beast is not good, right? And this is what he says. And all who dwell on the earth will worship this beast, will worship him. Everyone, that is, whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And so he's saying, okay, everybody's going to be worshiping this person, this individual on earth, except for those whose names were written where? In the Lamb's book of life, when? Before the foundation of the world. In other words, God had already chosen those who would be his before the very foundation of the world. Now, there's another way this can be translated. In the King James, it's translated like this. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, speaking of the beast, because they're going to be deceived by him, 
whose names are not written in the book of life, of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So is it the names written in the lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world? Or is it that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world? Both are true and both are equally good translations of the Greek text because of a technicality in Greek grammar. It can be translated either way. Is it that our names were written in the lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth? Or was it that the lamb was slain in the heart of God before the foundation of the earth? It can be either. The message is the same, isn't it? That the cross was not an afterthought. That those of us who are in Christ were not an afterthought. That we were secured in him before he even gave him in the sense of the birth and ultimately of the crucifixion. I know this is probably driving you nuts because you're going, what does this matter? What it matters is helping you to understand the enormity of the love of God. The extent to which he reached out to us that before the foundation of the world, he already had set his affections upon us, that he had already predetermined that yes, when he created heaven and earth and people that we were going to rebel, but even before that, he had made a plan to call us back to him. So great is the love of God. Mm. John 3, 16 is getting a little deeper, isn't it? Go to four. The expectation of love. It gets worse. It does. It does uh, in a great way. The next part says that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Now, the expectation then of God's love is that his love will save us, right? That we will no longer die, that we will no longer perish. That's the expectation. The question me, or the question here is how does this happen for us? He says that whosoever believes in him. So that when, when God's love, the expectation of his love is that it saves whoever believes. And the question becomes for us, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Are we talking about intellectual belief? Like gravity is going to, right? Hey, I believe gravity. That's my hundreds of that's dollars. That's your hundreds my... of dollars, right. It was very heavy. Very, very heavy. <laughs> um, there, is, there is an intellectual belief that we have in, in Jesus. We believe he was a historical, actual person. That's not the kind of belief that John is talking about here, though. The word here for belief conveys the idea of faith. So you could say it this way, for whosoever faiths in him will not perish. Now the question that I know all of you are going to answer correctly is, what is faith? <laughs> all one of you. Great. That was you amazing. At least John, John has you. Yes. Teaching it. Taking God at his word. Okay, so put it together then. What John 3.16 is saying here is that Anyone who takes God at his word regarding Jesus will not perish. And what does God say about Jesus? Exactly. There are well, lots of things to say about him. <laughs> He's and the Savior. We're about to get into that. We're <laughs> about to unfold it. There's a lot of ways to unfold that. But I want to stay within the context of this verse here, which I know is shocking to some of you, very controversial to keep John 3.16 in its actual context. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't do that because no. if, you don't, if you pull a verse out of its context, you can make it say anything you, you want. You can slap it on a coffee cup and That's then right. just apply it wherever you want. But when you put it in its context, you're kind of stuck with its meaning. Right, exactly. Are you going to exactly. do that to us? I'm going to do that. Okay, good. So remember the context here. The context is that Jesus is speaking with a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher. And, and in this conversation prior to, to verse 16, Nicodemus asks Jesus, how does one enter the kingdom of heaven? Good question. It's a good question. How do we go to heaven? Anyone want to know the answer to that, right? Yes, absolutely. So Jesus responds, verse 3, he says, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay? Much born less, again. Much less entered. Much less entered. <laughs> now, we've all heard, I think, that term probably if you've been in church, born again. What is going on here? Now, again, we're not, we're not trying to impress you with the Greek language here, but I, I think it's important because this unpacks some things that are, are fundamental for us to understand what's really going on here. Jesus is using wordplay here when he says you must be born again. It's the Greek phrase, genethe anathen, and it has two meanings. It can mean Born again, that's the first meaning, and that's the meaning that Nicodemus is, is thinking Jesus is intending. Verse 4, Nicodemus responds to Jesus. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? 
I mean, it's a good question, right? He's thinking with his finite mind. Absolutely. He's trying to understand eternal, infinite being with a finite mind. So, yeah, he, he thinks Jesus is saying you must be born a second time. You must be born again. And he's trying to picture how that works. Yeah. You, and it just, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't, it's not how it works. But there is a second meaning for this phrase, genetha anathen. It can also mean born from above. Uh-huh. Born from above, which is almost certainly what Jesus means, given the context. Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. How can one be born from above? How does this work? And Jesus says in verse 14 something very confusing, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, now hold the phone. What does he mean here? we got to go all the way back to the Old Testament book of Numbers, a book that I'm sure all of you are doing your morning devotionals in. Am I right? Probably not. They um, read Numbers. Numbers is not a very well-read uh, book of the Bible in evangelical churches. you got to go all the way back to Numbers 21. Moses is leading the people of God through the wilderness. So over the last... A few weeks, James and I have been in the book of Exodus doing a sermon series in that, if you remember that, the identity crisis series that we did. And at that last message that we preached two weeks ago, Moses was bringing the people of God out of, he had just come out of Egypt. They Remember, they went through the Red Sea, and then they're going into the ultimate, eventually, hopefully, get to the promised land. They do, but it takes 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And in Numbers 21... This is where they are. They're in disobedience. They're murmuring. They're complaining. Moses, why are we here? Why have you brought us here? The food is terrible. There's nothing to drink. Why did you take, did you take us out here to die? And then they start complaining about God. Does God know what he's doing? Or is, is God up to, to something here? And so God obviously takes issue with this. And it says that in classic Old Testament God fashion, he raises up fiery serpents and they begin biting the people, and some of them even die as a result of it. It's a terrifying scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the people begin to freak out. They go to Moses, and they say, you know, Moses, you got to go talk to God. Th- this is terrifying. <laughs> we, can't, we can't live. The, the snakes are going to kill us. I hate snakes. I hate snakes. Like Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones said, I hate snakes. And so this is what God says to Moses. This is the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten... When he looks at it, he will live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent. He fashioned a bronze serpent. And he set it upon a standard, a pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked upon the bronze serpent, he lived. They had to take him at his word. They had to. Now, what he said. now let's, let's ask the question. Did the bronze serpent save anyone? No. No. What did save them? Faith, taking him. They acknowledged, first of all, and this is important, they acknowledged we are dying from the venom. (laughs) We've got a problem. We've got a problem. (laughs) And God said, Moses, make a serpent, tell the people, look upon the serpent, and when they took him at his word, they were saved. Notice in this story, Moses is the one doing the work. God is the one who is saving the people. All they're told to do is just take him at his word. That's it. Trust him. And what Jesus is saying in verse 14 here is that in the same way that the serpent was lifted up on a pole, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Mm. On what? A cross, cross. we know, as the, the crucifixion story tells us. And, and in the same way, we acknowledge that we are dying from venom. But not just the venom of a snake, the venom of the snake, <laughs> Satan himself, and sin. And God says, Jesus Go and make atonement for that sin. And he tells us, look upon Jesus, faith in him, and that faith will save you. Again, notice the correlation. Jesus is the one doing all of the work. God is the one doing the saving. What are we doing here? Taking him at his word. Taking him at his word. We're just believing in him. God's love, the expectation of God's love, is that it will save you from death, specifically death from 
sin. Now that's the context of this verse of scripture that we yes. typically just pull right out of its context. And when you put it in its context and see that what yes. he was talking about, it makes it so much richer. Yes. So and much more meaningful. Because it, it's exactly right. Because Jesus gets done saying this, and in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then what does he say? For God so loved in this way all of the peoples of the earth that whoever will faith in him will have eternal life, hmm. that they will not perish. Now, I want to give you a truth, because this is an important one. Faith in Jesus doesn't just mean acknowledging that he can save me, but it also means acknowledging what he is saving me from. Hmm. In other words, listen to me, there is no salvation without confession and repentance. It's not possible. You cannot be saved if you are not openly confessing and repenting the sin that you know is killing you, the venom that is killing you. And it's a problem for everyone. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. The Greek word for all, it means all. <laughs> all of us. Rom Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Yeah, we're all snake bit. You got to get that. And what John 3.16 is saying is God so loved the world that whoever will take him at his word and look upon Jesus on the cross will be saved from the venom of sin that leads to death. You can expect that. It's an expectation we can have. It's a healthy expectation because God said that it would happen. So we have the embodiment of his love. We have the extent of his love, the expression of his love, the expectation of his love, and finally, the extension of his love. And I'll try to take just a couple of moments and wrap this up. The fifth one, the extension of God's love, that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. I remember hearing this, reading the story of a, a missionary about 100 years ago who was in New Guinea, was translating the scripture into the language of a tribe, and he came to this concept of faith, and they didn't have a word in their language that would adequately, you know, would adequately express faith. And he hadn't heard me teach for 37 years, so he didn't know to use take God at his word. Right, right. So his he, he, was trying to, he was trying to figure out how do I express what faith is. And he came into the hut and one day, after a long day, and he just plopped down and he said to his wife, it feels so good after a long day to stretch yourself out. And when he said that, it clicked. That's faith. To stretch yourself out upon Jesus. And so he translated John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever stretched himself out upon Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life. When you stretch yourself out on that chair, you're trusting that chair. You're, you're trusting what that chair is telling you that it will hold you up. How far does God's love extend? That they shall have everlasting life. This is not the grumpy God, is it? This is not the guessing God. This is not the games God. This is the giving God who gives his love, and his love is of a character and nature that it extends for all eternity. So when you receive this everlasting love, you receive everlasting life. Mm. Now get this. We must, and I'm skipping over some stuff, okay? Because I've got to get to the end here. We accept the love of God for eternal life, right? When we stretch ourselves out upon Him, He promises us eternal life, everlasting life. But then you must appropriate God's love for abundant life. Now, it sounds crazy to think, but it is often true, that we might have the promise of everlasting life because we have taken God at his word that Jesus died for us and we've received Christ, but then we never get around to appropriating God's love to us individually in life, and so we never experience the abundant love and life of God. Mm -hmm. And it is possible, it's very possible, and some here this morning can give testimony to it, to know that you have received the eternal love of God that has sealed you for eternity but you are not walking in the abundant life of God because you cannot seem to wrap yourself around that God's love is not only for heaven, that God's love is for right now, and that no matter what you are walking through, you are the recipient of this everlasting love. And that does something when you can wrap yourself around that. It does something that changes how you face the struggles of daily life, the challenges 
and the decisions. When I can understand that God's love not only stretches for eternity, it's right here and right now, right here with me and for me, no matter what I am going through. Mm. And that's the story of the elder brother. I didn't mention this in verse 7. You know, the prodigal son, we talk about the prodigal son so much, but the elder brother is really an illustration of this. Yep. The elder brother, he was the father's son too, just like the prodigal was, right? He never left home. He stayed at home. But the elder brother never lived in the fullness of the benefit of being a father's son. He was filled with anger and jealousy and bitterness. Why? He was a son, but he didn't live like one. He didn't live like a son. The prodigal went away, and when he came back, the father gave him such grace that he lived like a son. How tragic that is to stay in the father's house and never live like a son. That's what this is about. It's not about just receiving the everlasting love of God for salvation. It is walking in that everlasting love for abundance in life. That's right. Before I was married, Laura and I were, in fact, engaged. This was 1978. So it's been coming up on 43 years. We've been married 41 in July. I was struggling with trusting her because of my childhood, because of my background. I didn't trust anybody. And I was 25 years old by this time. I was in graduate school. I was in seminary. She was going to North Texas State. And I was driving back and forth, commuting to see her. And I would do things that would, were quite indicative to her that I didn't really trust her. I never really opened my, I didn't open my shirt to anybody because I knew you were going to get me. So I, I lived very shielded. And she picked up on that very quickly. And, and she said, you know what, you're either going to learn to trust me or we're done. And so I began a journey that didn't really complete until almost 15 years later in recovery. But I began a journey to try to look inside. And why is it, James, that I can't, why is it that I struggle? Because I wanted to marry this girl. I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And I knew I had to figure this out or, I, or it wasn't going to happen. And I got hold of a little book. Someone gave it to me by uh, an incredible, incredible guy, uh, John Powell. And the title of the book is, Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? Why am I afraid to tell you who I am? And in the book, he tells a story that knocked me flat. I, I've never forgotten it. Forty-something years later, he tells a story of being by his father's bedside when his father was dying. And when he knew that his father was gone, he says he began to weep. And his mother, who was there with him, said, John, your father is in a better place. And John replied, he said, I'm not weeping because he's gone. I'm weeping because he never told me he loved me. And he knew in that moment that he never would be able to now. Up until that time, even as an adult, he was still holding out one day, my father is going to tell me he loves me. But when his father breathed his last breath, he realized he can't ever do that. I will never hear those words and that was what caused him to begin to weep and I, I related with that story so well because being a kid that was on my own from the earliest of, of years my father the town drunk died when he was 41 never told me he loved me never, never provided never did any of those things abandoned that there was this thing in me that if I trust her she's going to do what everybody else has done my whole life, she's going to hurt me, and I'm not going to do that. And then when I was faced with that, that decision to trust her or to lose her, I took that risk, and I opened myself up, and I said to her, I said, if you're going to betray me, get started. And she didn't. Hmm. And she didn't. And I want to tell you, your Heavenly Father will never betray you. You can tell him who you are. His love is not only for eternity. His love is right now. And the abundant life of Christ is, it, it requires that we open ourselves up and say, okay, if you are going to betray me, get after it. Mm -hmm. And his love says, I will never betray you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word of yours that is living, that is active, that is so filled with such treasure of meaning and comfort and hope. 
for us who know you. And we recognize that in this life, we will never completely wrap ourselves around the fullness of your love. But Father, I pray this morning that someone in this room, perhaps that needs to take the first step of trusting you for eternal life, will do so. Turn to Jesus and him alone and commit their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Others of us here today that struggle with this day-by-day thing, does the Father really love me? Will he love me today? Will he love me tomorrow? To be able to relax and stretch ourselves out upon your undying, everlasting love that we can know and experience right now. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Hey, I do, I do want to say online uh, to those of you, first of all, thank you for tuning in. Um, the Babylon Bee uh, is now reporting, this is important for you to hear, that uh, theologians find going to church via Zoom will only get you access to heaven via Zoom. So we're, <laughs> we're deeply concerned for you. Um, so you're going to eventually have to come back? Yeah. We'd love to see you eventually. It's great. You want to Zoom heaven? <laughs> I don't think so. God bless you all. See you next time. I kind of-